Hey everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for this week. So today we're gonna to get into what makes a business extremely valuable, extremely sellable to private equity. Now I've talked a lot about the different types of exits, the context behind why building your business to exit is an important thing to be considering, certainly if you're scaling a business. And I've often said you don't make serious money when you run a business, but you do when you sell it. What I haven't done much on the show is go deeper into private equity. And as I go and speak on stages, I speak on other podcasts, and indeed, you, my listeners, have asked questions about this. I thought today I'm going to go really deep. In fact, I'm going to go 15 reasons deep because today is really about the reasons why, the 15 reasons why a private equity firm won't buy your business. Now, why have I done that? Well, let's let's get into this in, in a bit more detail. The biggest marketplace for exits, certainly high-value exits, is private equity. There are something like 8,000 private equity firms in the world today. And I think in North America alone, it's something like $4 trillion, yes, I said a T, of what we call uninvested funds. It means that the private equity firm has gone out there, they have raised a round, they've raised a fund, right, and they have all this money sitting there that they have not deployed. Now, that's a massive issue, right? If you think about it like this, how do private equity firms operate? Well, they go out there and they raise that fund from investors. The investors give them their money and they expect those private equity firms to go and invest that money doing M&A, buying businesses, bolting groups of companies together with the intention of then selling those businesses in the future for three to four times the amount of money that was initially deployed. So if you've got this $4 trillion sitting in the private equity firm coffers not being spent, you can see that the, the investors are not getting a return. Furthermore, these private equity firms charge a management fee, and that management fee comes from the fund. So think of it this way. I'm an investor. I've put my money into a private equity firm. I want them to spend that money on an asset that's going to appreciate. However, if they're not doing that, I'm still paying them from the money I've given them in these management fees. So you can see there's a lot of friction there. So firstly, you want to be able to understand that there's a lot of these firms out there and there's a lot of capital to deploy. But what you've also got to understand is you have to have certain thresholds in your business before you become attractive to that market. So the statistic goes like this. If your business is small, certainly if it's doing under eight figures, you have a 20% chance of selling it. Whereas if you're over eight figures, certainly if you're over a certain, a certain level of EBITDA, which we're going to get into today, profit, then you open up that marketplace and the odds change dramatically, so much so that you have something like an eight out of 10 chance of exiting when you get to that level of scale. Okay, so everything I'm going to go through today is through the lens of what is it that you need to be doing, right? These are the reasons why you will not be successful in exiting to private equity. So as we're doing this, I want you to go through each of them. And I want you to score your business. I want you to literally tick them off. Now, as we do that, you might have, out of the 15, you might have 10 that are in place. Guess what? You're very close to doing the last few things that you need to do to be successful in selling your company to private equity. As I said, the biggest marketplace in the world, right? If you've got 15 of the things I'm going to go through, guess what? You could probably take your business to market today and be successful. Of course, if you've only got one or two, You've got work to do. You should start your exit planning right now in order to do that. And just to finish off before I get into the 15, 
Why why not something else other than private equity? Why not IPO or sell to a, a strategic company, corporate, etc.? Well, first and foremost, those are still viable options, right? An IPO is a difficult thing to achieve, but it's certainly something that can be achieved in the future with a business. I often find that it's easier to sell to private equity first and then target some form of public offering later, but that's my personal view. A strategic sale to a corporate or anything like that is absolutely a pathway, but you can't dismiss the fact that there are all these firms out there and all this money in the private equity landscape that is there if you can build your business the right way with the right level of value and the right characteristics of attractiveness which is going to open up that market. Okay, so that is what today is about. So no matter what stage you are in your business, write these things down because they're actually really strong principles about how you grow and scale anyway. All right, so let's get into it. The 15 reasons why you won't be successful in selling your business to private equity so we can fix them, right? So we can understand them and do something about them. Number one, you don't have a high cash flow, profitable and growing business, firstly, And within that, you do not have a sustainable growth story. Now, this is pretty obvious. High cash flow, profitable. Anything that's generating profit and value is going to give a return. Okay, so if you're a business that's not profitable yet, quite often you won't open up the private equity markets in the way that, you know, when you are just profitable, breaking into profit or certainly generating huge amounts of EBITDA. Okay, growing is obvious. No one's going to buy a business that is not growing because it presents risk. And the important thing about having a sustainable growth story, in other words, a plan that drives growth into the future, is that when a business is bought, sold, it's the the future value that drives the multiple, right? People think it's, oh, the business is worth this today. Well, yeah, it's worth something today. But when someone comes in and says they're going to buy 10 to 15 times your average EBITDA, they're saying really that they, they expect that the business is going to perform and grow for the next 10 to 15 years, right? So just understand this point. When you get a 10X on your EBITDA, that's the same as getting 10 years worth of profit in a day. So if someone's going to pay that, or even more sometimes, I've been involved in a few sort of 14, 15X, you know, multiple exits, they're really saying you've built a stunning company, okay? And that's all about the growth story as well as it is about the current financials. All right, so number two, that was number one. We got 15. Number two, you have a unique differentiated brand. Now, often, and I like to look at this when I come and evaluate companies, you are often in the top three in your defined market. That could be by awareness, share, all those different attributes, or you are fast growing within that defined market. In other words, you're a brand that's got momentum. Now, brand sometimes gets confused. When I talk about brand, I'm really talking about all the characteristics that make up your offer. Okay, so it's everything. It's not just the colors of your logo and all those sort of things. It's the whole positioning of your business. So it's the the products and services that you sell. It's the way that you deliver them. It's the way that your people show up and turn up. And it's it's also about your reputation, right? But the thing that's really important here is that if you have something that is unique and remarkable, it's differentiated, usually it means that you can charge higher prices people will seek you out because you're different, okay? You stand for something. You stand against something. You have uniqueness about you. If you're a business that operates in a market where everyone is the same, the products are the same, in fact, you can't distinguish the differences, that's often called a commoditized market. And in that situation, you can't compete on service. You can't compete on value. 
you have to compete on price and therefore it's the business or the brand that can lower prices the most but still be profitable that wins and that's often called a race to the bottom and that's not a market you want to be in because it's not very valuable unless you have huge huge amounts of scale okay and by then you're probably one of the big global conglomerates that is out there you know IPO'd on the public markets that sort of thing okay number three you don't have a leadership team in place, or you certainly don't have a, a team in place that's running the day-to-day -day operations. So if you're the founder and you are still doing lots of things, you are core to the whole business operating, the business is not transferable. Now, often if I come and buy a company, the, the person that I'm buying it from, when they get their, their payday, that life-changing amount of money in their bank account, they don't want to sit around running the business. But if they go and then the business falls apart because every cog in the business relied upon them, I'm not buying a transferable asset. So therefore, there's no value. I've seen businesses that have got strong financials. They might be doing eight figures, high eight figures in revenue, even eight figures in profit. But the owner, the founder is so ingrained with all the customer relationships, all these different things that if he or she leaves, there's a risk. I've seen businesses like that that just can't even be sold. Okay, so you really have to understand the importance of this. All right, number four, aligned with having the leadership team, you also have strong talent across and through the organization. So what does that mean? It means that there are key roles in a business that don't necessarily sit in the C-suite. They may not be on the leadership team or the board. When I was at Getty Images, we had a very small team who were responsible for the integration of acquisitions. Now, when I was there, we did multiple acquisitions, but the team that ran that were a very tight, very, very competent, experienced, well-structured team that sat within the business, but the person who led that team wasn't on the board. They were just an absolute specialist, an expert at integrating businesses once they'd been acquired. Now, if I was mapping that business and looking at, at Getty from a private equity standpoint, I'd be going... There's strong talent in a key area, in key roles that are aligned to the business strategy. Okay, so again, when you're looking at your business, you need to be thinking the same thing. It may not be just having the, the great leadership team that's going to get you there. Alrighty. Aligned with all this kind of people stuff, number five, having a defined culture, or in this case, not having one. If you don't have a defined culture that's influencing performance, then you are presenting risk. Now, you might think, well, culture is a bit ethereal. I don't really understand it. But culture defines behaviors, okay? How you hire, how you fire, how you incentivize, all of those things. And the starting point of culture is values, okay? You've got to have values, which are defined really as the operating model of how we do things around here in your business, okay? And influencing performance, if people are, let's say, delivering the goals and objectives of the company, they're doing it in a really bad way, they're not ethical or whatever the different things are, then of course, that's not something that I want to buy as a private equity firm. Like you might have great numbers, you might have great results, but if everyone in the business is an ass, you know, and there are bad things going on, it's going to affect the value. You only have to look as far as recent things with uh, Uber and WeWork, you know, where they had massive cultural issues and the valuations of those companies plummeted because some of those issues got to the press, 
Okay, so culture is as important as strategy and you've just got to understand how to weave those two things together. If you haven't done any work on values in your business, I suggest an easy starting point is to pick up Gino Wickman's book, Traction, and he does some great stuff on how you can set up values in your business. It's not necessarily the what I call the best book ever on values and culture, but it's a really good starting point for entrepreneurial-led um, organizations. Okay, number six. Marketing, sales, and delivery are too reliant on you, the founder, okay? So in other words, it kind of aligns to point three around the leadership team and four, the talent. If you're the person who does all the marketing or you're the face of the marketing in your business, if you're doing all the selling, right, or you've got the key client or customer relationships that you have to own and control, and if you're delivering anything, whatever that is, like if you've got an education business, it could be delivering training, if you're involved in all of those areas, right, it's going to be very, very hard for you to sell the business, okay? You've got to build a machine. You've got to build something that's transferable. So as you scale, you've got to bring people in, ideally people who are better than you at the core competencies of a business. And let's be clear, there are only a few things that businesses need to do successfully to be successful. One is you know, acquire customers, right? Marketing. They have to then sell something, a product or service to those customers, and then they need to fulfill or deliver. And you've got to have people in those roles, certainly when you're gearing up for a high value exit. Okay, number seven. You don't have multiple, predictable and measurable customer acquisition channels established in your organization. So what does that mean? If you have one source of leads that's working predictably, that's great. However, if that one source of leads fails, what are you going to do? The business could go backwards very quickly. Revenue could drop, all of that stuff. So when we talk about having multiple customer acquisition channels, we're talking about having multiple ways of driving leads into your business. When we talk about predictability, we know that if we do certain things, we get a result. So if I've got paid advertising, for example, on Facebook, and I know that if I spend a certain amount of money, I'm going to get a certain amount of leads coming back into my business. That's predictable, right? You know, if I keep spending this, I get this. And over time, you want to start to build up models of measurement. So again, if I'm going to buy a company that doesn't know how it's going to generate its next piece of business, then there's risk in me being able to grow it. So it goes back to point one about having that sustainable growth story. Okay, so you want to have at least one, but ideally multiple customer acquisition channels, and you need to be measuring the performance of those channels all the time. So you're optimizing, improving, and performing. And I'll finish by saying this, that most businesses I get involved in, if, they, if they've if they got lots of leads coming in, they don't have many problems, right? It's often, it's often said that if you've got leads, you don't have many downstream problems because you can pay for those downstream problems from the revenue coming in from leads. However, if you don't have leads coming in, you've got a big problem for obvious reasons. No revenue, no cash flow, no business. Okay, number eight. Okay, you don't have a low churn, a reliable low churn business model with reoccurring revenue or recurring revenue. What do we mean here? So if you're having to go out there and hunt all the time for your next customer, and they're coming in, but they're buying once, then it becomes a very inefficient business model. You've got to go out there and get a customer. You've got to sell them something. Then you've got to go get another customer and sell them something. What you want to do is bring some, bring a client in, bring a customer in, sell them something, sell them something again. 
eventually get them buying something repetitively, like on a subscription or a long-term contract. And then you want to start measuring the lifetime value of that client. Why is that good? Well, it means that I'm getting huge efficiency from my marketing activity. Instead of having to go out there and always find a new customer, I'm sweating the asset of what I've already gone and got. Okay, so the best businesses have subscription models against them. You don't have to have a heap of your revenue going through, but the more money you have going through some form of recurring model, the higher the value of the business. It's why lots of SaaS companies get high valuations because once someone comes in, they, they, they sort of embed into those subscription models, right? And, and they don't leave, right? And that's the definition of obviously, you know, low churn. Okay, we're getting there. Number nine. You don't have a diverse customer base with no concentration risk. What this means here is you having diverse customer base means you're not reliant just on one form of customer. I'll talk about another example here from Getty because I think it's quite important. And concentration risk means that you've got, you know, effectively one, two, three, four customers where the majority of your revenue is going into. Now, if two of those customers leave, right, all of a sudden you've dropped, you know, 30, 40% of your revenue, you have a big problem, okay? So you have a customer concentration issue. You want to have multiple customers, you want to have your revenue spread across multiple customer segments, because then if a few leave or things churn or whatever else happens, your business isn't going to collapse. So in Getty, we had four major divisions, right? This is Getty Images for those of you who, you know, I keep saying Getty, but Getty Images, big global media company. We had uh, Media, as one of our channels, one of our kind of customer segments. We had uh, agencies, we had corporate, and then we had sort of unassigned small businesses. And we had different models against them. But the reason that was really powerful when we sold the company to private equity is that we had diversification across them. So if the media channel you know, started to not perform very well because the market changed, we could upweight our activity with corporates or with agencies and vice versa. So it gives flex and it gives opportunity if you have that. Okay, so, so when you look at your business, if you've just got one channel and you've got one or two customers driving all your business, it increases the risk, decreases the value. Okay, simple as that. Alrighty, number 10, you don't have fully documented systems and processes. So as I've said previously, scaling is about people and process and you want to build your business like a machine. So everything needs to be documented. It can be SOP, standard operating procedures, good systems driving automation and efficiency. But you've got to have something that, again, if you're not around or let's say some of the leadership team also want to leave, right, when the business is sold, the business is structured in a way that it's going to run regardless. So this this even means like having, you know, role profiles for all the key roles, making sure there are handoffs between those key roles, looking at the systems that are going to make jobs easier within the functions of the company. Okay, so often this is delivered by having a good COO, Chief Operating Officer in the business, but I generally say it's about having a good operation overall. It's all those handoffs between marketing, sales, fulfillment, all of those things, but you've got to have them documented. Okay, number 11, you don't know your KPIs. Nothing's in place and there's no automated metric tracking. Okay, so this is a reason why private equity would walk away. Private equity loves precision. Private equity loves data. It loves insights that come from data. It loves businesses that are run by performance metrics. Okay, so again, if you don't know your numbers, financial numbers, if you don't know the key things around leads, fulfillment, uh, churn, all those different things, uh, employee engagement, if you haven't got those things in place, you don't have the dial that's allowing you to, to fly the plane. 
Okay, think of that. Jumping into a plane, into the cockpit, and you haven't got all of those different um, charts, tools, things in front of you telling you where you're going. Okay, and if you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up somewhere, but it's probably not where you want to be. Okay, so KPIs, that scorecard is going to give you the information to be able to evolve, to pivot, to drive the strategy to get you the result. And again, private equity love that. So the more that you can show that that's in place in your business before you sell, the better. Okay, we're getting there. (laughs) Almost there. Number 12, you have audit-ready financials, or actually you don't have audit-ready financials. You need to have these in place, okay, especially things like quality of earnings. So many times I go into a business that thinks it's doing well because it's measuring some basic numbers around its revenue coming in, its costs, but they're not strong financials. And when you go into it and you actually unpack it, you realize there's massive holes all over the place. Huge, huge risk. So I often say that if you haven't got a really good finance person or finance team in place before you sell, definitely get like a CFO or a fractional CFO team in, a chief financial officer, to come in there and, and really kick the tires on the numbers. Because in terms of a, an overall value, 50% of the value of your company 40 to 50% is going to come from the numbers. The other 40 to 50% is going to come from these other areas that we're talking about. You know, the people that you have there, the processes, the structures, the brand, the culture. But still half of the value is going to come from the numbers. So you've got to have audit-ready financials. Okay, number 13. Uh, You don't have a high-quality board or advisory team in place. The first thing a private equity firm is going to do when they buy your company is put a board around you. Okay, they're going to have an operating partner. I used to be an operating partner in a number of PE firms. They're going to put a smart guy or girl with an MBA from Harvard or something like that, a really strong financial brain they're going to put around it, and you're going to have some governance. Now, the more that you can demonstrate that your business operates with that in advance, right, of you selling, the better, because there's nothing worse than, you know, back to risk. I'm a private equity firm. I buy a company that's very entrepreneurial. I put a board in place and then the whole culture capitulates because they're not used to that. If you can demonstrate that you have guidance, you have the right people around you, you're coachable as a, as a founder and a, and a leadership team, that de-risks the fact that you're going to have those people involved in your business once you sell anyway. Okay, or certainly the people that are left are going to have that. So the more that the whole business is used to having that in place, the better. Okay, number 14. Right, here's the big one. Okay, this is the one that I expect quite a few of you listening may not be able to tick. $5 million plus of EBITDA. Okay, net profit, sometimes called. But this is the profitability of the company. So 5 million plus per annum. Now, why 5 million? Why not three? Why not four? It is true to say that private equity will buy um, some businesses that are a bit smaller than this. But if you want to create certainty around a private equity exit, then you want to get to this number. And it comes up all the time. Buying a business that is big versus buying a business that is small is still difficult. So a lot of the principles that I work with in the private equity firms would say, listen, I don't want to muck around with a small business. I want to buy something bigger because if I can bolt that EBITDA onto what I'm already doing, I'm going to get to my end game quicker. And my end game is to get three to four times return on my invested capital. So if you're listening to this and you're at, say, 1 million EBITDA right now, there are absolutely ways for you to get to 5 million pretty quickly, okay? Like different types of growth strategies. 
if you're at 3 million, you might be able to sell your business right now, but you're probably going to be a bolt on to another business that's already been acquired by private equity. Nothing wrong with that. You know, you can still get a good multiple. But if you want to be a platform, if you want to be a business that's like the first first purchase from a private equity, and then you get to do a buy and build strategy with them, the absolute minimum, in my opinion, is 5 million EBITDA, and ideally higher than that. Okay? So, Take that as you will, but that's the target that I often set as the minimum threshold when I work with you know founders and companies who want to scale to exit. Okay, we've got there. I've almost lost my voice, but we're there. <laughs> Number 15, your platform is not ready to scale via M&A. In other words, you haven't listened to anything I've spoken about for the last 20, 25 minutes, and you haven't got the business structured in a way where the foundations are really, really good that you can then grow by acquisition. Now, remember, the playbook of private equity, the thesis is acquisitions. They're going to buy your company and they're going to buy other businesses and bolt them all together, create a group and then sell them up the chain to a bigger private equity firm or even if it's a bigger one than that, possibly even IPO. Okay. Or conversely, you know, they're going to buy you and bolt you to something else. So everything is around acquisitions. Everything is about M&A. So the more that you can demonstrate that either you've done some, in other words, you've done a small acquisition or a few and you've actually built your company through through acquisitions, that's great. But you've got the infrastructure in place to now scale through acquisitions. It's going to help you significantly. Okay, so I'm going to finish there. It's a relatively longish episode because there are 15 different things. As I said, these are the 15 reasons why you wouldn't sell or couldn't sell your business to private equity. But equally, if you have these things in place, you can sell. So go back, listen to this again, maybe take notes. Uh, I might even create a different assessment around this. But this is super, super important, particularly if you want to create a high value exit. And what I mean by that is if you want to sell your business for anywhere between 20 million to say 200 million, what's in the sort of lower to mid market private equity, this is the playbook that you need. All right. Just before I finish, um, I've been asked for some time to create a mastermind. Um, and I am delighted to say that I'm finally doing it. The mastermind is going to be called Scale to Sale, and it is going to have some very, very influential and high-powered people involved in it. And we are going to be officially launching the mastermind in September this year, but we are doing a pre-launch now for founding members Okay, it's going to be an annual mastermind. It's all going to be about scaling your business to exit. It's going to cover a lot of the principles that we have here. It's going to have some very uh, influential guests involved. It's going to be retreat based, but also content based. If you're interested in being part of my first scale to sale mastermind, then please get in touch. You can contact me on LinkedIn or you can go to my website, which is highvalueexit.com. And you can fill out an application for that. In fact, we might even have a specific landing page for it in the next couple of weeks too. So I'll make sure we update the show notes for that. But that is it today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. What makes a business sellable to private equity, specifically the 15 reasons why your business won't be successful in doing so. As I said, apply these principles and you will get to your end game. As I often say, be grateful, be brave, have faith and show up. Bye for now. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, 
then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.